Welcome back, longtime loyal listeners, new tiny pocket friends, old tiny pocket friends, brand new listeners, however you identify. Hello, we're glad you're here and welcome to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. This is the podcast where our bread and butter is reviewing a popular self-help book every single Friday. We call it our full frontal Fridays. We've been here for years (laughs) doing this. Where have you been? Right here with us. Thank you. So, Our goal, our aim is to be of service to you and to wade through the giant clusterfuck that is the self-help world. This is an explicit podcast. Welcome. This is, we are adulting very intensely. (laughs) But our, our hope is that in under an hour, you will have the high points of the book, the main themes, overviews, maybe perspective altering ideas and shifts and takeaways. And some of the pitfalls of the book, what to watch out for, what could be damaging, what doesn't feel good and feels just kind of icky. (laughs) Ah, That's what we're doing. And then on, I almost said Wednesdays. I I almost said, listen, by the way, that's Lisa Linky. (laughs) I'm Misty Stinnett. And we don't just do full book reviews. No, no. On Tuesdays, we have shorter, sweeter episodes that we lovingly refer to as the weekly beef. And that's where we're exploring anything and everything that's not a self-help book. And uh, we also, in very exciting news, have launched a Patreon. It's a way for you to get all kinds of bonus content for just a few dollars extra every month. And it supports all of the production costs of the podcast. And that is where we are checking in on what we call our deep dives, which is the homework and the things we're trying from the books. Because we're, we want to be in the arena. We don't want to just be spectators, you know, critiquing or reviewing other people's work. We really want to try out what they have to say. And so we are doing really in-depth check-ins about what we're trying from the book. And intimate. Spoiler alert. Intimate. Intimate. It can get intimate. It can get a little naughty. It can get real personal. It can get maybe there's rage. Who can know? Oh, there'll be rage. It's a mystery box. I <laughs> drink your milkshake level of rage. I drink it up. Gosh, he said that's such a great movie. So if you want to check out our Patreon and support us, you can have instant access to all of the bonus content and we're are we're uploading new things many times per month. So the link is in show notes. We also have merch. If you haven't seen it yet, it's so cute. The link to that is also in show notes. And we're just so glad you're here. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to expand the community and engage in a deeper way. So Lisa, without further ado, what do you have for us this quick? Let me tell you, I am excited about this book. I'm excited to bring you a better man, a parentheses, mostly serious, Letter to My Son by Michael Ian Black. And it came out last year. So it's hot, fresh off the press. Ooh, why does any Michael Ian Black sound so familiar? He's an actor, a writer. I'll give you his bio, but he was in, he was one of the founding members of The Slate on MTV. He was in Wet Hot American Summer. You you know him. You absolutely know him. Okay, okay. Yeah. He's got black hair, and he's like the guy who's known on TV for being the snarky dude. 
saying things deadpan oh, to your face. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So some book prices, some admin. Hardcover is $22.95 on bookshop.org. Paperback uh, on Amazon is $16.95. Bookshop did not have a paperback available. Kindle is $9.44. And I'm going to start investigating because there's a, a website called must, mymustreads.com and they offer uh, like Kindle, like uh, ebooks, but not from Amazon. So I'm going to investigate that because I got that Ooh, link through cool. bookshop.org and bookshop.org yeah. gave a link to Libro or Libro FM. So the audiobook was mm-hmm. 1839 or free with membership and it's narrated by the author and it's 304 pages. Love it. And Lisa and I have been leaning towards bookshop.org and Libro.fm for a while instead of Amazon because it does support independent bookstores. Yes. And Libro, mm-hmm. no, Bookshop has raised over $10 million for independent booksellers. So Lisa, if you had to sum up this book in one sentence, what would it be? It's like Dear Girls by Ali Wong, but mm-hmm. it's focusing on masculinity and a series of lessons by Michael Ian Black for his son who is leaving the house to go to college as he's writing it. Oh, this is delightful. Yeah. And so for those of you who don't remember, Dear Girls is by the comedian Ali, Ro- Ali Wong, and she's writing a series of letters based on a series of letters that she found for, that her dad wrote her as mm-hmm. he was dying. For her daughters as they get older. Yeah. yeah, so it was really, really wonderful. Okay, so about the author. Michael Ian Black is an actor, comedian, and writer who started his career with the sketch comedy show The State on MTV and has created and stars in many other television shows. Movie appearances include Wet Hot American Summer, The Baxter, and Sex Tuplets. Black is the author of several books for children, including the award-winning I'm Bored, I'm Sad, and I'm Worried, and the parody, A Child's First Book of Trump. (laughs) His books for adults include the memoirs You're Not Doing It Right and Navel Gazing and the essay collection My Custom Van. Black also co-authored with Meghan McCain, America, You Sexy Bitch. As a stand-up comedian, Michael regularly tours the country, and he has released several comedy albums. His podcasts include Mike and Tom Eat Snacks with Tom Cavanaugh, Kavanaugh, yep. Topics with Michael Showalter, How to Be Amazing and Obscure. He lives in Connecticut with his wife and two children. It's so interesting that he lives in Connecticut, like being a full-time actor and comedian. But then my brain was like, oh, he's probably in the part that's like 40-minute train ride into the city. To New York, yeah. So uh, here are the chapters. Introduction, The Wilds of Connecticut. Chapter one, Some Guy, Now You're Home. So it's some, all of these are the title, colon, and then a, I guess you'd call it a subtitle or subheading. Who can know? Who I've never, I've never, I've not read many books. Thank you. <laughs> Chapter two, Rosary, Tell Your Kids You Love Them. Chapter three, Skate or Die, You're Not Toxic. Chapter four, a useful engine. You're a real man. Chapter five, no sissy stuff. Be yourself. Chapter six, do you even lift, bro? Share the load. Chapter seven, beer from a leg. Respect the service of others. Chapter eight, smoke signals. Violence is, parentheses, almost never the answer. Chapter nine, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Take pride, but not too much. Chapter 10, gunslinger. You can't do it alone. Chapter 11, lucky charms. Choose happiness. Chapter 12, it's just plumbing. Communicate with your partner and pick up the check in parentheses. Chapter 13, everything and nothing, be humane. Chapter 14, here I am, do something positive. Chapter 15, a better man, breathe. Chapter 16, one guy, turn. I'm only going to hit on a couple chapters, but I'm, spoiler alert, I'm going to recommend this book. 
Oh, great. He's a wonderful writer. And it's funny. I laughed out loud at least once in every chapter. Oh, God. We all need more of that. It was delightful. It was truly delightful. (laughs) So I heard him talk about this book on an NPR show. I think it was Ask Me Another. And then I met him while working on Bless This Mess. He was a guest star on one episode. And we were on location. And I told him about it. I was like, oh, I heard you talk about your upcoming book. And I have this podcast where we review self-help books and I can't wait to review it. And he was really kind and it's funny. And he's, like I just said, he's a great writer. I really enjoyed it. It was a quick read and the entire concept is around masculinity, but he ties it through with these lessons that he wants his son to know about masculinity and being a man. And he puts plenty of his own experiences throughout. And in the acknowledgments, he says that his primary intention was to write a loving, inclusive book that serves as a primer for guys to begin thinking about basic questions about modern masculinity. The same questions that he's been asking himself as a man and the father of a young man. And his secondary intention was to simply demonstrate that it's possible for regular, non-academic men to have these conversations in ways that don't diminish their masculinity. Oh God, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So introduction, The Wilds of Connecticut. Okay, so he starts the book by talking about how he and his wife bought this house in Connecticut just before their second child was born. His son is their firstborn and their daughter, Ruthie, Elijah and Ruthie. And so several years after they moved there, he talks about one morning waking the kids up, one December morning, getting them ready for school, putting them on the bus, coming back inside, like lazing on the couch, working. And that was the morning that Sandy Hook happened. And Sandy Hook happened to be the elementary school next to their elementary school. So their kids were safe and they got like the emergency message that like, we're in lockdown, your children are safe. And then later they got the message like, we didn't tell your children anything because we wanted you to be able to talk to them about it. And they were like, what the fuck do we tell these tiny children? And so it was very, it's very moving. And Ruthie gets off the bus and she's like, was it really windy today? And they're like, no, why? And she said, they said it was too windy for us to play outside. And they were like, okay, so... We sat them on the couch and we were like, something bad happened. It was a bad man with a gun, but it's okay because he's been he's not around anymore. But he's like, as I sit there telling them, I know it's not okay now. It's not safe now. I get up every day, I put him mm-hmm. on the bus. And, you know, mm-hmm. since Columbine, this happens. And he does this quote. He's like, at the time that that I, you know, started writing this book over 2000 something. From the time that happened to the time that uh, oh, like God. you're going to college, 2000 school, school shootings have happened, and it'll probably hit 2500 <sighs> by the time you you know leave for school. Like it was just really, oh my God. Then he quickly makes a connection with masculinity. He says, traditional masculinity encourages strength, independence, fortitude, all good qualities. At the same time, though, it provides no useful outlets for our vulnerability. If we cannot allow ourselves vulnerability, how are we supposed to experience wonder, fear, tenderness? If we cannot turn to others for help. What do we do with bewilderment and frustration? How do we even express something as elemental as joy? So he does make that caveat. He's not Uh, an academic. He's like, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an anthropologist. He's like, I'm just someone who has read a lot on this topic and I'm formulating ideas for my son who is venturing away to college. Yes. Yeah. So in chapter two, it's Rosary, Tell Your Kids You Love Them. This chapter is about his own father who passed away when he was 12. And he writes about that Mm. so eloquently. I was really moved by it. He says, one of the reasons I say I love you to you and your sister every day is because my father could never bring himself to say the words to the three of us. He has an older brother and a younger sister with special needs. He says, it hurts me to admit to you that he wasn't a very good dad. 
I am convinced he loved his kids, but he didn't know what to do with that love. Maybe he worried that he didn't have enough, and so he kept it in reserve, the way he kept emergency supplies in the trunk of his car. I know I loved him. I just didn't know how to break through, and I was afraid to try. If I had to guess, I guess that he was afraid to try too. But I liked being a boy, and I wanted one day to be a man. To do that, I had to understand them. After my dad died, I didn't know how I ever would. Men, I thought, understood the whole of the world. And so I was kind of skipping through there, but he kind of really connects how his loss of his relationship with his father left him without a guidepost on how to be a man. Yeah, and the interaction he did get didn't wasn't a wholehearted picture. That's right. And what rushed in was then the societal definition of masculinity and manhood. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, because when you don't have someone showing you another way, you're going to pick up on all the messages that are being fortunate bombarding you. His parents divorced, so his mother discovered she was a lesbian. His parents divorced, and they the three children went to live with his mother and her partner. And Mm. he's very honest. He's like, listen, so I learned a lot about feminism, but that was like second wave feminism, and it was very Mm -hmm. man-hating, kind of, like, you know. But he's like, but I also learned to treat everybody equally, you know? Like, I, Mm -hmm. so he had a really interesting perspective. So chapter three. Yeah, that's really complicated. It is. It's very interesting. To try and untangle all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So chapter three, skate or die. You're not toxic. So this chapter is all about the concept of toxic masculinity. And he takes issue with the, with even including the word toxic at all. He says, if traditional masculinity is no longer working, I want to make it clear it's not the fault of our biology. It's why I don't Mm. like the phrase toxic masculinity. To me, the term implies that there's something inherently wrong with men. Some poison baked into our Y chromosomes. Bullshit. You're not toxic, although I admit you don't always smell so great after track practice. (laughs) I worry that the term toxic masculinity is a little like the phrase New Jersey native. Both are impossible to hear without feeling a little defensive. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you to feel that way about being a guy, but I worry that continuously describing male expression as toxic has the cumulative effect of denying the goodness in men. Although men bear responsibility for so much of what's wrong in the world, we also provide some share of what's right. And he does a wonderful job of explaining the inherent power structures across race and gender and class throughout the book in thoughtful ways wow. to an 18-year-old. like Without does, being an academic. Yes, through questions and examples that are easy mm. to grasp but difficult to dissect, right? I think yeah. that the nature of this book is that his son and anyone reading will ponder these ideas over their lifetime and not come to a full understanding at the end of the chapter, right? Like, He's just giving his child a roadmap to think about things critically for the rest of his life. Yeah, even just introducing those questions, you know, is so powerful because if they had easy answers, I think we'd have solutions yeah. to a lot of this stuff. But it's his point is really interesting because it's not that masculinity is toxic. It's that the way we confine what society feels is appropriate for a man, man to yeah. Be, behave, feel, do. Yeah. That's what's toxic. That's what's toxic to the full and complete soul yeah. living within that body. Yeah. So it's almost like, I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but if we said learned toxic masculinity, yeah. That feels totally different than like, oh, masculinity is inherently toxic. Yeah. It's a different way yeah. of communicating it. 
And I love that he's really showing tenderness and kindness to his son. Right? Yeah. So here's an example of how he explains things. So he says, I'm telling you that because so much of the current American anxiety over, quote, toxic masculinity in the culture starts with the role of white men. The reason this conversation is happening now is because for the first time, the traditional power structure is under threat. Here in America, that power structure has always been as male and white as George Washington's bare ass. Why is our white male power structure under threat? The white part is easy to explain. As a percentage of the population, there are fewer white people than before, and our numbers are decreasing. Fewer white people means, literally, less white power. And then he goes on to tell us on that because of like cultural and technological conditions, the rise of women's rights, you know, how Liz Plank mentioned the technological disruption of job availability for men, and this decreasing white majority, he says, men's sense of identity, community, and purpose has blurred. The question about why we are having this conversation about, quote, toxic masculinity now answers itself. This is the first time this conversation could happen. It is the first time Mm. that white male dominance has been under serious threat. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Because otherwise it just got shut down before. Well, it was never even a consideration. Like, we couldn't even consider it. The power structures were so strong that it was like, no. He says the answer is empathy. Empathy doesn't make men weak. He says it, quote, gives him a compass to follow when he needs to be strong. And then he goes on to posit that it isn't a coincidence that school shooters are nearly always white males. He says it's the ultimate manifestation of white male privilege. He says, those guys aren't content to merely destroy themselves. They want to destroy the entire world. That thought process and the level of self-importance required to see one of these massacres through requires astonishing arrogance. Here in America, that arrogance is most commonly associated with one demographic, the straight white male. Mm. It's nice to see a straight white male calling it out. I mean, it's great. And also to have to find a way to explain this to your kids is such a heartbreaking truth of modern, like the modern world. Yeah. And like, and this is exactly, this is an example of what, you know, anti-racist work is, is trying to dismantle the power structures, but the people who need to do the dismantling are the ones within the power structure. So that's what this looks like for a straight white man to be talking to his straight white man, you know, son about what this looks like. So chapter four, a useful engine. You're a real man. So this chapter is all about what it means to quote, be a man and how the traditional masculine ideal is difficult for boys and men to figure out. It's double-edged. Be boisterous and loud, but suffer quietly. Like it's really complex. And as we talked about in Liz Plank's For the Love of Men, Women do not have to earn femininity like men have to constantly earn or prove their masculinity. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is. And here was a cool thing he said. Over the last half century or so, women have been working to redefine their roles in society. Why hasn't the conversation around manhood kept pace with the conversation around womanhood? Why don't we ever talk about the role of men in the culture except to point out our shortcomings? Perhaps because, to an overwhelming extent, men are the culture. It's only when the culture begins to change that men are forced to confront their own dominant place within it. That's what we see now. It's why we need a commensurate positive message for men that mirrors the one women have led for the last half century, which is kind of what Liz has said in her book. But then he kind of goes on to describe for himself that his manhood is quiet, 
and sit, not his manhood, but like his, what he describes as manhood for him, but not his member, which is what a lot of <laughs> thank you novels called penis. <laughs> called beasts. Yeah, thank you. So he says, my manhood is quiet and simple and straightforward. And he's like, I can't put a word around it, but the closest thing I can describe is, quote, settledness. He's like, I still have anxieties, but overall mm. I'm happy. And he's like, happiness isn't usually factored into what it means to be a man at all. The measure of manhood yeah. is utility. What is our use to the world and to our families? What do we provide? Mm. Yeah. So I've Misty, never seen it that way. This is your homework. But that's, that's right. If oh, a God. young man asked you, how would you describe manhood? I tell him it's, you're well, no it's good your if homework. you're not useful. Thank you. There you go. We'll talk about that on our deep dive. Listen, I'm talking to a Patreon. lot of young men at the moment, <laughs> so I'll make sure to let them all know. Well, do you have a nephew? No. No, the Stinnets are all, all, all women. Every every man that was in the last generation had daughters, multiple, all of them. Okay, well, if one of these young women who is beginning to date said, what, what is a good man? How would you describe that? That's your homework. What's a good man? Yeah, what's a, what's a good oh. man? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah there we I'll go. We'll go into this on a deep dive. We will go into it on a deep dive. And I will do the same. Okay, chapter nine. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Take pride, but not too much. So he's like, another rule of masculinity is winning. And all these chapters are like, this is a rule of masculinity. This is a rule of masculinity. So much winning. Remember that quote from the current president? Wait, so is he saying, real quick, just to make sure I'm understanding, is he saying that these are rules that exist in society? Or is he saying, this is a rule I want you to create for yourself? These are the traditional rules of masculinity that don't make any sense. Okay, cool. Right? Yes. So he was like, remember the quote from our current president's campaign, so much winning, you'll get tired of winning. And I wanted to say, I'm really feeling all that winning while I'm waiting to see if the Senate will pass a $2,000 check, although Mitch McConnell voted, uh, objected to put it to the floor. In month nine of a pandemic where I haven't been able to work, it's so much winning. Anyway, he offers a different oh, perspective. By the way, remember, we are at the end of 2020 right now. So if everyone has received $10,000 in stimulus payments in the United States, ignore this and send us 100 bucks. And anyone else around the world, <laughs> can you stand our winning? Can you stand our winning? Can you okay. even stand it? So he offers a different perspective. He says, a better rule than, quote, win, approach your tasks with humility, not pride. Your life will be filled with wins and losses, however you define those terms, and you will be immeasurably happier if you can accept both with grace. And then he broke down the difference between pride and dignity. And Misty, what do you, how do you distinguish between pride and dignity? I guess for me, dignity feels more multidimensional. Like pride is something that you have or you don't, whether you win or lose. Like if you win, you're like, awesome, I'm proud. If you don't, you're like, I am not proud. I have no pride. But dignity feels like an act almost. Like I lose with dignity. I treat you with dignity. I have dignity whether I win or lose. It's just kind of a like, I will be kind no matter what. That's exactly what he says. He says, I think a lot of guys get into trouble when we confuse pride with dignity. Don't fall into that trap. Pride and dignity are not interchangeable. Pride is something that comes from accomplishment or association. Like you said, I win. Dignity is inherent. It's a birthright. Pride is something that distinguishes one person from another. Dignity is the glue between us. Like you said, be kind. 
we all have or should have a fundamental sense of dignity, the sense that we matter not because of of what we've done, but because we simply are. Like you said, I will win or lose with dignity. You matter. The things you do matter too, but who you are matters more. That's your dignity. And dignity allows for humility. And I thought that was interesting. I never really thought about separating those two out. So the way he puts this into practice is he says, the advice he says, as you leave, I want you to find ways to take pride in the small things you do, the little daily stuff, washing a dish, folding your laundry, whatever. It's a mindfulness practice, a way of giving your attention and care to something that nobody will notice but you. You can't win at folding a shirt, but you can do it well. That's an interesting way of asking a young person to care for themselves in a way that doesn't, you know, that there's no value other than to themselves, but asking them to practice some self-care, right? Yeah, I really love that a lot because it's about, you know, that that old saying, character is who you are when no one is watching. Yes. And like, just because it might not, you know, when you a Pulitzer Prize or some kind of fame or something doesn't mean you shouldn't do everyday tasks with care. And it reminds me of something my dad said to me and he was like, look, it's not worth doing if it's not done right. Yeah. You know, like do things with pride for yourself, right? It reminds me of when my dad taught me how to shine shoes. And oh I was gosh. like, why, why do we do this? Like, who cares? And he's like, because you feel better when your shoes are shiny, like even when they're not dirty. And it just takes a few minutes, mm. but you do it. And it was so nice. I don't know how to shine shoes. Can that be my homework where I learned how to shine shoes or you teach me? Do you have a lot of leather shoes? Yes. Are they and I stuffed? have shoe polish. Some of them. I'll teach you how to shine shoes, but also... Thank you. It's not that hard. You are still doing the homework. Okay. Okay. I could probably look so, it up on YouTube. chapter 10, Gunslinger, You Can't Do It Alone. All right. Misty, mm. Michael Ian Black would fit into our podcast. I feel like I'm going to just make the statement. Michael, you are welcome as a co-host anytime you want. Ooh, come on the podcast. So he says that the concept of a, quote, self-made man is utter bullshit. And he gives Mm. some history. So that phrase first appeared in 1832 by Kentucky Senator Henry Clay when he said, quote, self-made men are those who have acquired whatever wealth they possess by patient and diligent labor. Okay, you're amazing. And I need you to only speak to me in that accent for the rest of our friendship. (laughs) That was a little more Alabama, I think, than Kentucky. I love it. You said wealth. Uh-huh. In context, the speech is about how Southern factory owners can compete with the more technologically advanced British factory owners because of two components, water power and labor. And the labor he's talking about is slave labor. They didn't oh, use God. patient patient and diligent labor, except out of the enslaved. He's literally talking about acquiring wealth off the sweat of the enslaved, oh, off the God. backs of the enslaved, and calling himself a self-made man. So the whole concept of self-made man is built on bullshit. Is bullshit and has always been bullshit. Yeah, it's built on bullshit and racism and, you know, cheating from others dishonesty. and dishonesty. Yeah. So, but, and it's this idea of a gunslinger. Uh, there are bad men in this village and we have to pay this one lone ranger who comes to town and shoots him up and takes his money and goes away and mm-hmm. he does it all himself, right? 
truly no one does anything alone. That's no right. one. Somebody's got to build the building where your self-made business is going to be. Like unless That's you right. grew the che- trees and chopped them down and then did all the framing yourself. And, you know, it's like, no, no he one does quotes, anything alone. Um, Frederick Douglass, who made a great quote about how none of us are capable, none of us did anything alone. It was really wonderful. But so then he asked, so the way he puts this into practice, I think is so smart in the questions he asks his son. Think about all the people for whom terrible adversity ends up being overwhelming. Were they born with any less promise than you? Did they deserve any less success? Boys no less smart or talented than you begin their lives in terrible circumstances, maybe poverty, addiction, neglect, and cannot ever find their way free. Are those boys self-made too? Or do we acknowledge that circumstances contribute to the lives we end up living? Mm, thank you. Right? And I just love that he doesn't do it in a way that's accusatory. He does it in a way that's like, think about this. You know, his son is going to meet people who are very different from him when he goes to school. Yeah. And although I don't know if he ended up going to school in 2020, like, who knows? You know, like, oh, no. Oh, I didn't even think about yeah. that. Like, he might just be like learning on Zoom from his bedroom. Interdependence is viewed as somehow more feminine, yet we are all dependent on it. And this strains this masculine ideal of going it alone. So Mm -hmm. I just love that he is asking these questions of his son and not saying, I mean, it's obvious what the answer is, right? But like, he's just asking him to think about these things, which I think is so beautiful. Okay, here's my favorite chapter, chapter 12. It's just plumbing. Communicate with your partner and pick up the check in parentheses. Okay. Okay. It was such a cool way to talk about consent, and I think it's incredible. I was just listening to Brene Brown's most recent podcast yesterday, and I it had Tim Ferriss and Dax Shepard on, and they were great. And they were talking about the numbers of sexually abused boys, right? Because Dax Shepard has been very open about his sexual abuse. And Tim Ferriss acknowledged that recently he shared his experience with sexual abuse. And they were saying that the numbers of sexually abused boys are probably on par with girls, but because of how masculinity is perceived, many men never share it. And they're like, also, we don't educate or didn't educate boys about consent and bodily autonomy, bodily autonomy like we did or do with girls. So there's probably going to be this pandemic level awareness and of men who have been molested or abused. And it was fascinating and scary. Anywho. I hate it. I know. Yeah, and it it makes sense how like the implicit structures in that do work to keep you silent. If you're supposed to suffer silently and never complain and only be of use and, you know, you're weak if if you admit this happens to you. Like it's, yeah, that's heartbreaking. And then there's the whole thing Dax was very open about and frequently repeats that he's like, I never talked about it because I was afraid that people would say I was gay, which is a very, you know, he's like, I don't care about that now. But as a child, that was a very anti-masculine thing, right? Like that was the worst thing as a child, whatever. Yeah. And we know from Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, that what our bodies recognize as sexually relevant stimuli, that does not mean we're into it, but our body just goes, oh, this is somehow related to sex can bring on a lot of shame. Like, and you know, trigger warning for what I'm about to say and probably retroactive trigger warning for what we've already talked about. But 
you know, when a woman is sexually assaulted, if she gets wet, if she has an orgasm, same with a, a young boy, right? If he's being assaulted and he gets an erection, there can be so much shame tied up in that. Does that mean I liked it? Does that mean I'm at fault? All of this stuff. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's totally different than what your brain and mind are thinking. Your body is just going like, oh, this is sexual stimuli. Not I like it. It's totally yeah. separate. So yeah. I can understand how it's really, really complicated. Yeah, yeah. To talk about that as a young boy or a man. yeah. Yeah. What I liked about this chapter is he makes the conversation earnest, but it's not drudgery at all. And so I just mm. felt like if I was a parent of a boy or a girl, a young man or woman, this felt like yeah. a really nice template. So, well, and it feels like a nice template. And listen, I'm skipping ahead a little bit to one of our our questions that we ask at the end, but like feels like it's really nice f- for parents who don't know what to say to their kids and are struggling with that emotional intelligence like his dad was, they can just hand them this book. But also for for women to understand what it's like to be a young man, you know, yes. moving into yeah. adulthood. So yeah. like, here's an example. He says, he talks about how, because he was raised in a feminist household, he made every date go Dutch in the beginning. Like he mm-hmm. did not pay for every date. And he's like, that was a bad move. Like it's not attractive to be penny penny counting out how much your date owed for her calamari. Like it's not a good sure. move. Sure. And it's, also if she's only making 74 cents on the dollar, thank you. And you probably should calculate that in two to be truly Dutch. And he's like, I was such a doof. Okay, so here's what he says. Here's some advice from father to son. Don't split the bill with your date. If you ask her out, you should pay. That's not sexist. It's the polite thing to do. If she asks you out, you might also volunteer to pay because that's also polite, but hopefully she insists and then you have to a little pretend argument about it, which hopefully ends in one of you saying to the other something like, was this our first fight? And then laughing about it and making out. <laughs> it's just like so fun, right? And then he talks about consent. He talks a lot about consent. And he says, in other words, Sex does not have to be some minefield you're attempting to cross without getting blown up. Far from it. Having consent frees you from the terror of wondering, is this okay? And opens you to the experience of being honest, loving, and positive. Don't wait for her to say no. You should actively affirm that what's happening is what she wants to happen. But here was my favorite part. He says, moreover, check in with yourself to make sure that what's happening is also what you want. Traditional masculinity assumes that all guys are sex-crazed goons. We're not. Yes, we sometimes, often, want sex, but not always, and not always with the person who's offering it to us. I feel like this is an under-discussed aspect of male sexuality, but it's important. Men can say no, too. And he talks a lot openly about how his one-night stands were not fulfilling, Mm. and how what he really craved was intimacy, and he didn't, and that wasn't fulfilled, and like the walk of shame happens for men, too, and it's because what he wanted, he didn't get. You know what I mean? It's very yeah. Open about and even even though there might be less like shame or stigma in it for because like awesome dude, you hooked up last night, great. As opposed to like, oh, was that a meaningful connection? Did you feel good leaving her house this morning? Like, yeah. Are you sad? <laughs> I just really liked his approach, and that I whole chapter is, is that's like just a a blink of that chapter. It was so good. I'm going to just breeze through this one last chapter. Chapter 15, A Better Man, Breathe. This was all about spirituality. He said, we have spiritual hunger, and that's a spiritual need. He said, (laughs) we say, I have spiritual hunger is how we just 
describe a spiritual need, but we don't have spiritual wants. I like that. He's like, we don't have spiritual wants and needs. It's a need. It's like, a, it's like a hunger for food. You don't just yeah. have like, I have a spiritual need for, I don't know, maybe some prayer. No, like you have. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a like, need to feel connected to something larger yeah, than yourself. It's yeah. Just as critical as food for our bodily hunger. And so he was like, you have to work to fulfill your spiritual needs. And he said, so what is that work? What feeds our spiritual hunger? To me, the work of the Spirit is twofold. The first is discovering meaning and purpose. What inspires you, excites you, moves you, prods you to look more deeply into yourself. The second critical part of your spiritual work is passing your inspiration on to others. A full spirit wants to be shared. I just love the way he writes and the way that it isn't like, I know what's up, you know? Which is what I expected yeah. from him based on his characters that he plays. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. The condescension or or patronizing somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the thing that I just keep coming back to is like this idea is really starting to emerge in a more prominent way of wholehearted living. And I think he's right, the conversation is lacking when we talk about people who identify as male and who are in male bodies. And you know, we we have talked a lot because women have been oppressed in a major way for a really long time. But yeah, like we all are humans. And although our biology differs, and I'm I am not a doctor and I do not know enough about how that influences thoughts and feelings, but like we all just want to be able to feel connected and whole and seen and that we can express our truest authentic selves and be accepted. And I just feel like the structures we have right now for gender expression are so narrow and don't let any of us, you know, really express in a full way. Yeah. He did and make so a cool like, comment. He was like, your generation is much more comfortable with transgender and, you know, less rigid gender identity. And he's like, yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah. the last part of parenting is just stepping back and letting your new ideas come through. I'm going to say one last thing oh, because cool. this killed me is the last chapter, <laughs> chapter 16, one guy, yep. turn around and wave goodbye. And I mean, this hurt me and deeply affected me. It's He says, from now on, each time you come back, after he leaves for college, right? From now on, each time you come back, this home will feel less and less like your own. One day, you'll tell somebody you're going to your parents' house and you won't even notice you said it. Mm, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Right? You say, I'm going home, I'm going home, I'm going home. And at some point you say, I'm going to my parents' house. Yeah. And then you might move away to a new place and people will eventually say, you know, say you grew up in Connecticut and now you live in North Carolina. You might someday be like, oh yeah, I'm from North Carolina. I was like, I'm from Connecticut. It's just crazy. I don't know. That one got me because I realized... I now say I go to my mom's house, and I don't know when I said that. Aww. I'm sure it was decades ago, but I forgot it. You just It was like one of those things where you say to parents, you don't know the last time you pick your child up will be the last time you pick your child up. Yeah. And that is A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son by Michael Ian Black. And of course, links to everything will be in show notes, but... Man, I love this book. Great job, Lisa. Great job, Michael. This is stellar. Lisa, did this book need to be written? 100%. I feel like it was, you know, we loved Liz Plank's book. I think hearing it from a white, a straight white male was really interesting. And vital. And 
and vital. And then also the addition of saying it to a child mm. who is a straight white male is also a unique lens that um, yeah. we hadn't heard before. Yeah, and super so I, compassionate I like and gentle and just like filled with. And so intersectional. Yeah. All the way. I loved it. I loved Dude, that's it. That's so, see, this is why we keep saying like, it's not that hard. Like when Lisa and I harp on authors <laughs> for not being intersectional or not having caveats or, you know what I mean? Like, we say that a lot, but like we've seen it recently in a lot of books that this is how it can be done in a really beautiful way. I think when people get frustrated, it's because they're white males who have not often had to consider the caveats. other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're going, it's not and that so hard. It feels but, like an, it's an oppression. Yeah. You know, the privilege view equality as oppression. So yeah. it feels like. Don't tell me how to write my book. Yeah. Or this to is include hard. This other feels people. really hard for me because I haven't had much practice yeah. at thinking about this. Whereas yeah. a lot Ugh. of the I can't write a, I can't include everybody. Ooh. Yeah, and we're, we're like we're just trying to include people all the time, so we're just seeing opportunities left and right. Um yeah. and I don't mean we, I mean like like Lisa and I, I mean like anyone who's not the privileged ruling class. I mean, I also have a little bit of empathy because the culture is them. Yeah. So they always feel included. So uh, yeah, and a lot of things are invisible that way. Exactly, included. exactly. Yeah, but also do better. Yes. <laughs> so what did you try to put into practice from this book, and how did it affect you? Well, for my son who's leaving to go to college, um, I just kidding. <laughs> you know, the focus of this book is for a parent of a son yep. or for a young boy. I guess I did like this idea of pride and dignity as being separate. Mm-hmm. I guess there's really, I don't know. And and I just, it's continuing my thought about masculinity and yeah. manhood. And, well, it, and it sounds like the next time you culture. have a conversation with somebody about this topic, it will have affected that conversation. I will also say I've been watching Bridgerton on Netflix, which is Shonda Rhimes' new show. And it's really wonderful. And there's a lot of chat chatter going on the internet about this one scene where people are confused. People are questioning whether or not it was marital rape committed by the wife. And I don't know. And I'm using this book as a framework to kind of think about it. So when you get to that scene, Misty, we'll, we'll talk okay, about it. Okay. Yeah. I haven't started Bridgerton yet, but I'm very excited. I saw the preview and was like, it's this so incorporates good. a lot of things I'm into. I say, yes. It's very Misty. Do you feel yes. that the author missed anything? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's chosen 16 chapters of 16 lessons of masculinity, right? So there are probably many, many mm-hmm. more. He hit on like the big ones of like violence and this culture of winning yeah. and, you know, what it is to quote, be a man and yeah. sex. But we should have um, talked about I'm lighter sure things like snacks, things. what snacks to have as a guy. <laughs> Beef, jerky, <laughs> um, anything. Covered in cheese words. Uh, <laughs> Gulping down with the beer. <laughs> um, God, I don't know. While watching, sports. then make a doctor's I don't, I don't appointment. <laughs> I'm sure that there will be people who read this and feel like, but what about this? You know, yeah. Um, I just feel like it's a nice primer. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's a beginning of a conversation. I love that. So I'm sure there are things that are. Left yeah, out. but as the jumping off point, sounds pretty cool. Yeah, especially because he made such an effort to be intersectional and explain like you can't he also says specifically in the book you can't talk about masculinity without also talking about everything else you have to talk about race you have to talk about class you have to talk about gender you. you know what i mean like he's like yeah he, he really makes that point so it's hard for me to say like he forgot things okay 
Great. And who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy it for? I would absolutely buy it for any parent, whether they are male or female, identify as male or female, or a single parent or coupled. Mm -hmm. I would buy it, even if you don't have a, a child who identifies as male, I would buy it because I think it's important for women to start thinking about men. I think we focus so much on women's rights and women's identification mm-hmm. that I think it's important for us to understand that men are a victim of the patriarchy too. Men are a victim of this idea of learned toxic masculinity too. Yeah. Right? So we have to unpack that ourselves so that we stop expecting these things from men as well. Yeah. And accidentally perpetuating it, which is like Absolutely. a horror show, but it's true. That we can never say things like, take your balls out of your purse or be a man or, you know, don't be such a pussy. Like we can't, we can't say those things. No, not at all. Or man up or like, I expect you to never cry. It's like, then we're just reinforcing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you already gave me my homework, but to recap, it is that on the deep dive on our Patreon, you want me to define what I think a good man is? Or just manhood. Like if some, if, if one of your nieces said, what is masculinity? Like, what is manhood? And is that what, what I, mean to be a I man? hope for it to be? Or what do I think it is now? I mean, look, you get the choice to either fuck this child up and say, they have to be strong. They have to have muscles. They have to eat beef jerky at every meal and fart. Yeah. Like, you get to choose. Okay, great. <laughs> I get to choose the future of masculinity. You're welcome. That's right. Uh, Lisa, thank you. Michael, thank you. Everyone who's here, thank you. And with that, please come on the please podcast. Please come on the Michael. podcast. And with that, life, life is, is abundant. abundant. Yeehaw. Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Saff. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at ghypodcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.